coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. In other words, you won't quite have a quick route to something like cancer or, say, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. But the truth is, the more people you put behind something, the more money you invest, the bigger the chance is going to be to make a difference and then make progress. So again, I hope, and, and it's happening actually, greater investment now in biomedical research on the back of the COVID success should accelerate discovery and new treatments for these other diseases as well, we hope. But it won't be quite as straightforward as sticking a bit of a virus into someone and hoping it works as a vaccine, if you know what I mean. These are devastating diseases. They will increase in incidence as our population ages, and we all know people with these diseases. So, so we need to really put our shoulders to the wheel as soon as we can, because these are becoming so serious. I am Professor Luke O'Neill, and I'm very happy today to talk about my new book, What Makes Us Human, and it's all about what makes us interesting as a species. It's aimed at curious kids. And I'm very happy to take part in this podcast of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Professor Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry in the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College Dublin. Professor Luke O'Neill is a world-renowned scientist who has a passion to engage with the general public on scientific topics. He is amazing at using simple and clear language to explain complex things. Professor Luke O'Neill has been recognised in his effort to popularise science and in raising the profile and awareness around the value of science to human progress. A regular presence on national radio and TV, such as News Talk and RTE. Luke has also published several books, including Keep Calm and Trust the Science, An Extraordinary Year in the Life of an Immunologist, his diary covering the COVID-19 pandemic, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Science, and most recently, What Makes Us Human, A Scientist's Guide to Our Amazing Existence, with Guild Publishers. We spoke about energy, how he manages all his projects, a dinner table conversations at home, and also his love and passion for music. We unpack developments in neurodegenerative illness and cancer research, and what learnings we've taken from the pandemic in that regard. Luke talks about hormones, his breakfast routine, but also his managerial role in the lab. Professor Luke O'Neill is a highly skilled communicator, loves challenges, the challenges that science gives him, and has a really wonderful zest and vigour. Enjoy this one, because we certainly did. Professor Luke O'Neill, welcome to the show. We'd we'd like to start with, we're always curious about breakfast of champions, Kiran, but what do scientists have for breakfast? Oh, that's a personal question. I couldn't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, guys. Delighted to chat about the book. Uh, I'm a great man for plugging my own book, as, as, as you would appreciate. <laughs> um, I'm not a big man for breakfast, interestingly. I might have a cu- cup of coffee and a piece, a nice piece of toast with a bit of marmalade. That, that normally does me, you know. All the food groups are kind of in their mix there somewhere. Now, I'm all, I've got a circadian rhythm, I think, that, that makes me hungry in, in the evening. So I have a big dinner every night. But I'm, I'm not a huge man for breakfast, it must have been. Building into coffee, do you take into account the adenosine buildup? Do you take it 90 minutes? Oh, or do just... well done. Here, yeah. I, absolutely. I ha- you have to antagonize that adenosine. That's the function <laughs> of the caffeine, which actually is a great example of science in action for me there, that we figured out why coffee makes us alert. Isn't it great? You know? 
stops yeah. this adenosine molecule, which makes us sleepy. So it's pretty simple. Yes, yeah, so I'm very conscious of the adenosine levels in the morning. So I make sure I need a cup of coffee to get me going, basically, as well. What else can those curious scientists of the world do in the morning to maybe if they haven't slept well or they're a bit stressed because of exams, what can they do in the morning to get themselves going? Oh, that's another good question. I suppose um, in my case, have a good hot shower. I love that. Or a cold shower, if you prefer. Either way, you know, that gets me going. And your mind then begins to think about the day ahead and you try to focus on what, what's in front of you kind of thing. The second thing I always advocate, I'm a great fan of the, of the, uh, the to-do list. Oh, yeah. That makes you feel you're in control and that decreases stress in a way. You know? And you can't beat the little rush you get when you tick off. Like this morning, I'll tick off our interview with the little rush of, of endorphins, you know, <laughs> following our chat. So in the morning, I'll always think, what am I doing today? You know? I've got three or four important tasks and I focus on those and then off I go and then I'll, a cup of coffee up and running. They're the things I usually do in that. Yeah, I disagree with you when you say the shower. The only thing I'm thinking of when it's cold is get me out of here, get me out of here. Quick. <laughs> yes, well, that's like it. Some, some love cold water. You know, it's a strange one. And yeah. as, you, as you both would well appreciate jumping into the sea, very beneficial. I'm the same with you. I, I can't stand the cold water. I much prefer a warm a hot shower. Yeah, and we're you know two physios here and we're having a lot of exposure at the moment to people saying, what about the sauna? Should we get into the sauna for recovery during the week? Is that something to consider? Yeah. So the, whole hot, the whole hot cold thing, I think, is really interesting. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's great to have the conversation around, actually. Recently, it's, it's much more been brought to the fore, but I've managed to get up to 75 seconds and in five-second intervals for the oh, cold shower. That is it for max man. now. I think I've maxed out. And now. is it agony, Kieran? Agony, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But then you get the endorphins after you see no, no pain, no gain territory. You know? There you go. I, I think the cold shower or the, or the cold swim is a shortcut to an endorphin rush. That's the way to think of it because of the pain you're going. So we'd love to ask the question is you're you're a busy man, right? To say the least. You're you know, you're you're on the radio news talk, you know, my wife listens to you, my mother listens to you, you're on the late late, you're speaking to us. How do you manage your energy over a week and how do you you know, keep yourself going with all these pieces where you're having to give a lot to different people. Well, first and foremost, I would choose things that you want to do. Let's put it that way. If it was a chore, I couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Same with the travel. I've just come back from a big tour, actually, of of various countries from congresses and immunology, you know. Now, if I was getting on a plane and not wanting to go there, that'd be a misery. You see, I'm schlepping over to America and back off. I want to go. I want to go to the conference. I want to meet people and talk. So, So first and foremost, in my sort of professional life, I try to make sure I do things I really want to do. And that makes them easier then. And you need less energy to do them because you really want to do them. That's the first thing I'd say. Uh, The second is I've kind of got four parts to my professional life and they're like four separate buckets, you know, and I like all four and I make sure I keep all four going and some dominate over others. Number one, by far, is my lab just behind me here. That, That has precedence over everything else. Uh, I've got a big research team working on inflammatory diseases, and that's a big goal for years for me. So that's number one. You know, number two would be if we want to try to make a new medicine, which which is our dream. That means working with companies, and I do a lot of work with companies because drug companies are the place to make the medicines. And I found out a couple myself. That'll be the second thing. The third one is the communication thing, and I began doing that. 10, 15 years ago now, simply because I enjoyed it. You know, that's just got a bit worse, if that's the right word. For <laughs> um, the COVID, but I'd be so and the books and all that kind of thing. So I like doing that. And, and then the fourth one would be the teaching, because obviously I'm an academic. So I've uh, got to teach the students as well. So, I, I'm, so I'm quite organized. Is that the answer, David? 
That is a good good answer. Getting all the Bunsen burners going at all the time and and managing which one. You gotta keep the Bunsen. The Bunsen burners are turned off. I'm very unhappy. Let's put it that way. You know, (laughs) mission one is to be a scientist. My my job is to be a scientist, you see, and that means doing research. You recently said about the book that you're trying to inspire young people to become scientists. What's the landscape for scientists at the moment? Are we needing more and more applications in terms of CEO, in terms of college? Or is it a competitive market? What's going on at the moment? Yeah, I believe so. And there's an uptick in, in people applying to do, say, immunology, for instance, and for obvious reasons, because it's in the media. You know, It's a bit like forensics is always popular when there's a forensic show on telly. More yeah, people CSI. Apply. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think we are seeing that uptick in, in, in people wanting to do science. Um, and it's not just uh, immunology, it's the climate. There's all these big things that confront us at the moment, all these, all these problems that we're facing, climate change being a big one. Another good example, mental health. There's a lot of people doing neuroscience now, you see. So I think what happens is young people want to challenge and they want to feel they're doing something meaningful, you know? And what could be more meaningful than trying to solve climate change or solve a mental health issue, whatever it might be? And COVID gave us the evidence that science got behind that massively and delivered with the vaccine. So, so the young people respond to that. But you got to keep telling them, we need you. Yeah. Because there's many demands on them, isn't there? And there's many stresses and anxieties. And, and, the, and the message in the book is the last page captures that, you know, there's all these challenges. We need you, you to become scientists if you want. I mean, obviously, it's, it's an optional thing. But, but because I'm a scientist myself, I'm a bit like a Baptist minister in the pulpit. In the <laughs> uh, come and join us. You know, and, and, and maybe, maybe some will. Because the trouble is, you know, that, that can put people off as well. <laughs> Too much proselytizing can be a negative. So there's a balancing act there. But one reason I wrote the book was to encourage, to, just to first of all, inform young people about how great science is. That's the first mission. And then the second is maybe they might think about becoming scientists, really. So they're, they're the two main things that, the, that, the, that this book is trying to achieve. With the book and with those Bunsen burners, science, we're always trying to answer questions or come up with better questions, maybe even that. What are the questions that are really sparking you at the moment that maybe are going on behind you in the lab? Yeah, well, my lab, we're, we're an immunology lab. So what we work on is the immune system. And as you both know, the main job of the immune system is to fight infection, clearly it evolved to fight the bacteria and the viruses and the parasites. And it's a marvelously effective at that. Otherwise, our species would have been wiped out by these pathogens over the years. And we learned a huge amount about that. But equally importantly, uh, it goes wrong in a whole range of diseases. And as you both know, as physios, inflammatory conditions like osteoarthritis, rheumatoid, uh, IBD, MS, all of those are immune mediators, And we don't know why. So some of the questions that is uppermost in our minds is what's causing those diseases? And in my life, I've packed it back more and more to the source in a way, you know. So, for example, we work on a thing called NLRP3, a terrible mouthful, but that is the initiator of much of the inflammatory process. And then we found drugs to block NLRP3 mm-hmm. and they work in models of MS and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So, so really, we're trying. my lab is trying to come up with a deeper understanding of what goes wrong in the body during these diseases and then maybe design drugs and therapeutics to stop it, you know. Now, now of course, um, this, the other big area to mention is cancer, you know, because, and again, I guess you both would know the, the great triumph of cancer in the last, what, 20 years is to wake the immune system up to kill the tumor. These checkpoint inhibitors, I think called CAR-T, this T-cell yes. therapy, they're massive advances. And, now, they aren't, they aren't curing it yet, yes. but, they're, but they're a huge advance on what was there before. So a big question many immunologists ask is, can we get the immune system to kill a tumor? And again, lots of labs are, are pursuing those. So within immunology, those are some of the key things that we're interested in. About the immune system, and of course, we, we can read and understand a little bit more about it, just as a, 
as a sharing. I have I have a young girl who currently is struggling with infection, right? And she's in right. she's in Temple Street. And so we're we're understanding infection and building up her immune system. And and why did she get that? What is it about how we could have made made it a bit more resilient? What can we do as humans, as as young kids, as adults, maybe to help understand and do a little bit more to strengthen sure. the immune system. Well, well, we do know a lot about it. Though. The good news is, I mean, when I began as an immunologist, it was 30 years ago, you know. Now, our knowledge then was a tenth of what it is now, for obvious reasons. All those years of, of work with many tens of thousands of immunologists discovering stuff, you know. So we do understand a lot more. And uh, in that particular, there's often a genetic basis for these things. Because we're all different, obviously, as a species. Some have a strong immune system, some have a weak one. Some have immune genes out of control and that can drive disease. Some have immunodeficiencies, you see. So that's often in the background. But equally, the environment is extremely important. And we can do things to help our immune systems. And again, lots of research. Stress is a massive negative. And things like cortisol suppress the immune response, you see. Exercise is massively beneficial. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that, David. One is just the blood flow stimulates the immune system. So as your blood flows, they're all, all the leukocytes in your circulation are surfing the wave of the blood. That's a good analogy. Um, and they're kind of waking up. You know? so, so exercise is great. Um, nutrition, really important. Obviously, people who are malnourished, you're at a high risk of infection. You know, that's, that's, that's the third one. And then the fourth one is sleep. And again, loads of studies showing a bad night's sleep can drop your immune system by a third the next day, for instance. Now, if you're unlucky enough to be exposed to a virus after a bad night's sleep, maybe that's the day you get infected because you didn't have a good night's sleep. So, so again, we know a lot about the mechanisms in there, which is great because I, I, I like that. And in fact, during the pandemic, before the vaccines came along, I was saying to people, you're not powerless here. You know, there are things you can do to help your own body fight the infection. Mm -hmm. and, and those are the four uh, main areas that, that we, we advise people to follow, really. You, know? you touched on something earlier about how the world came together to fight coronavirus. We you know, very quickly got vaccines together and we kind of, through a necessity, obviously survival, our biggest, our most vital need made this the primary goal for a lot of countries, for a lot of individuals, a lot of scientists. Yeah. If we were able to shift perspective on other diseases like cancer or anything like that, do you think we could achieve similar outcomes in maybe not as quick a time? A classic Irish, I do and I don't. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> the vaccines turned out to be somewhat straightforward in retrospect. And right? we got lucky with them, it must be said. So okay. that RNA technology, as, as you know, the RNA is used by Pfizer and, and um, Moderna. That hadn't really been used before for vaccines for infectious diseases. It had been used for cancer, interestingly. And they gave it a go and it worked fantastically. Well. Hmm. So we were lucky. Now, now, if that hadn't have worked, we still would have got vaccines using the more traditional vaccines. Like, for example, Novavax has what's called a subunit vaccine. That's the protein. And, and that's like an old-fashioned, and that works well, you know. Mm -hmm. They have an old-fashioned inactivated virus. But the truth is, the RNA came along, worked brilliantly. So we got a bit lucky there in a way, you know. And then they turned out to be the first generation vaccines, I guess. And meanwhile, these other ones are there. They're, prob they're almost as good, you know. And of course, what I like to quote now is, and the, and the statistics are, are getting even more remarkable with the data that's coming. And I remember if you're a scientist, you're driven only by data. If you haven't got the data, shut up, right? Um, yeah. So uh, the vaccines saved 20 million lives in one year. That's like stopping a war, you know? Yeah. The 20 million people didn't die because of these vaccines. So they worked brilliantly. Now, now if you turn to other diseases, they're more, the trouble is they're more complicated. You know, so in other words, you won't quite have a quick route to something like cancer or, say, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. But the truth is, the more people you put behind something, the more money you invest, the bigger the chance is going to be to make a difference and then make progress. So, again, I hope 
and, and it's happening actually, greater investment now in biomedical research on the back of the COVID success should accelerate discovery and new treatments for these other diseases as well, we hope. But it won't be quite as straightforward as a sticking a bit of a virus into someone and hoping it works as a vaccine, if you know what I mean. How are, how are we doing in terms of neurodegenerative issues? You've touched on Alzheimer's. We're reading books about health span, vitality, lifespan, Dr. David Sinclair, what he's trying to do with the story he's trying to project. How are we doing on that? And, and how can we get a better grip of, you know, seeing our grandparents maybe not quite as we remember them? And that can be hard. How are we doing in that space? Well, it's been difficult, David, obviously. I mean, um, you know, take Alzheimer's as, as, a, as a classic example. Um, the many years of failed attempts to stop Alzheimer's. And then finally, this beta amyloid hypothesis comes up with this protein of beta amyloid is building up in the brain for some unknown reason, by the way, but that's the fact of the matter. It's seen in post-mortem samples. They make mice that overexpress it. They get Alzheimer's. Loads of evidence supports the beta amyloid hypothesis. And of course, companies wonder, can we, can we suck up the beta amyloid? Can we clear it? And they use antibodies, one of the great parts of biology, you know, um, and they work a bit and they weren't working that well. And then the, the whole hypothesis was being questioned. And then last week, a very clear study on, on, a, on a beta amyloid approach that did give benefits and slowed down cognitive decline in Alzheimer's. And in my opinion, it's the first real evidence that there may be progress now. So, so in other words, we're, we're, get, we're, we're getting to grips with it to some extent. Of course, what that is about is understanding the underlying mechanism. You can't fix an engine unless you know which part is broken. And if the beta amyloid thing is correct, we'll see more progress. I see it, David, like, like fingertips on a cliff face territory. We're, we're clinging on there. We may well see advances there. And with Parkinson's, it's a bit similar. There's a thing called alpha syndicate that builds up in the substantia nigra. Again, if you clear that or get the immune system to clear it, that could be a way. So I think we're seeing advances in neurodegeneration from the immune side. Now, I would say that as an immunologist, but, but it is true. So, so we're seeing advances there, you know. Now, in terms of other things, the big question is what causes these diseases? We'd love to know that because if you could discover the cause, that's the huge question to ask. And there's bound to be environmental influence. Like head injuries are a big risk factor for these diseases, remember, as you, as you know, as well from sports injuries, all that. So there's stuff going on there that's interesting too. So let's put it this way. It's not for want of trying though. These are devastating diseases. They will increase in incidence as our population ages, and, and we all know people with these diseases. So, so we need to really put our shoulder to the wheel and try to make more advances as soon as we can because these are becoming so serious. That's excellent. Just bringing into a bit more current affairs, we're coming into the winter periods and looking at incidence of infections and diseases. Is there anything we can do as a general population to maybe stave off bugs, stave off viruses at the moment? Should we look at maybe going back to masks or what's your opinion on what, what we should do? That's a tricky question, inevitably. Now, I think uh, number one, and you both, we all know this in space, the boosters are critical for this because mm. we're seeing waning of immunity, which is disappointing, by the way. Some vaccines last for 20 years, right? For example, the yellow fever vaccine gives you 30 years protection. Isn't that remarkable with a single oh. shot? <laughs> wow. This one, a, a dumb look in a way, you know, we, we got lucky with the initial go, which is to stop severe disease. The trouble is they are waning, especially in older people. So number one, get the booster in because and we, there's great data from the US and where it lifts immunity right back up to 90% protection. So that's the first thing everybody should do who's, who's eligible, get your booster shot. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I think the other thing we can do, and remember, it's not no surprise there'll be an increase in the winter because we're all back indoors. They're a respiratory ailment, so it'll spread like flu and so on in the winter. So how, how do we mitigate that? Stay home if you have symptoms. It's as simple as that. 
there's a risk you've got COVID. You might give it to someone who's vulnerable. Don't, don't think of yourself as much as other people. So sex, don't, don't go out if you've got symptoms. The mask thing, it would make sense to wear masks in crowded settings, like on the dart or in you know shops and so on. It's not a big ask, is it, to put the masks back on? So, so I reckon that should be recommended. Now, whether you mandate it, that, that's a political question. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to answer that one. But I, I think my, my message at the moment Finn, is just think of others. I mean, we, we, we got through this together the first time around by, by most people following public health guidelines and becoming vaccinated, same through this phase. Just, just think of other people is, 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 is the main thing. Really. Great message. I'd love to pivot to your book and the title. We, we actually were saying, we actually really want to dig into that because obviously yeah. we've read it. But what does make us human and, and what are you trying to what are you trying to share with that? With well, we're so we're so egocentric as a species, aren't we? That what makes me a very important <laughs> yeah. thing. Why am why is my species so, so wonderful? <laughs> Even though we're destroying the planet, by the way. But forget that for a minute. Um, forget climate for a minute. Yeah, well, I, I just I'm a biologist, you see. So and, yes. and obviously for a biologist, I'm obsessed with humans as much as anything else. And it, was, it always was intriguing to me personally what makes us interesting, if you like, as a species. Like, why are we different from a bird or a dog or a dinosaur or whatever? And then, of course, we compare ourselves to other primates like chimpanzees and there's loads of stuff over. I read a, fanta- a big inspiration for the book, David, was um, a book by Jared Diamond called The Third Chimpanzee, which I read about 20 years ago, which basically said if, if an alien came down to Earth, say, 200,000 years ago, we, we would have been classified as a third species of chimp. You see? Okay. What's happened in that time is we got much more inventive. We got more curious. We begin to use tools more effectively. You know, we begin to display art. You know, started wearing book. hats. Started wearing hats. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yes, very importantly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a picture of me. Um, <laughs> but, but no, you know, the, the book. The book tries to say, look, what makes us unique as a species is things like our sense of humor, or we love music, don't we? And our inventiveness. I mean, there's a chapter in the book on the great machines we've made, like the International Space Station, for example. And then there's a bit on robotics and how they might help us. We've been extremely interesting as a species in the past hundred years, but all the stuff we've invented. So I go into that a fair bit. But, but the, main, the main thing I'm trying to talk about is, you know, what makes us interesting, I suppose, compared to other species is one of the overarching things. Something you talk about as well in humanology is uh, food and our relationship with it. Interestingly, I love food and I often joked about this saying the hormones that, that cause my hunger levels yeah. to depreciate don't exist in my body. <laughs> leptin, leptin, leptin is absence from my You're body. You're lucky, then, yeah. yeah. You, so you can have your cake and eat it. That's yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. How much do um, what's gone on in kind of social media, kind of advertising, kind of marketing changed the hormonal probably secretion in our bodies as a, in terms of our exposure to seeing these foods all the time, seeing more yeah. and more things in front of our face on screens all day, every day. It's got to be a very important thing. And as you know, the big issue of the controversy of advertising fast food, I mean, that, that's been prominent, you know, for years. Yeah. Really. Like, you know, the way um, there were billboards outside schools from McDonald's, they stopped that. Because, <laughs> you know, because again, yeah. like, that could trigger a hormone, like ghrelin might go up, and ghrelin's the hunger hormone, as you may have read, or you may know already. So ghrelin goes up and that makes you hungry. There's no doubt seeing images might affect the ghrelin pathway. You know? And I do think um, that chapter in particular, it's, it's intrigued me when the, it was a guy called Steve O'Reilly, actually, he was one of the first scientists, an Irish scientist in the UK in Cambridge, was the first to work on leptin and say, you're not obese because you're stuffing your face all the time. You're obese because there's hormonal changes that could be out of your control in your body. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's in, 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 um, in that. My, my, my next book, I hate to mention it already, I haven't finished it yet. 
there's the whole thing about fat shaming. That's a really horrible thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's not just as simple. It's very complicated. This, you see. So I think, and again, to me, it's a great example of science discovering something new. In this case, about obesity, that really helps us try to come to terms with this epidemic. You know, and again, helps people who are prone to obesity in various ways. You see. So, so that hormonal connection, I think, is a really, really important advance in understanding of, of obesity and metabolism love to dip into the arts and creatives and the intersection of music and science and kind of what is it about that? Because sometimes you hear, I'm into science, I'm not, you know, not into that sort of stuff. And then yeah. you go to them and they're oh, man, I'm not into that kind of thing. <laughs> but what about those rare breeds of human that go across both worlds? And what's that like? Well, it's a surprise there. Many scientists, <laughs> many scientists are musical. I'm not joking. It's, it's not a, to quote the famous Tom Jones, it's not unusual. <laughs> For a scientist <laughs> to be musical. And I play music, as you know, as a hobby myself. And I would often go to conferences, right? And uh, this is over the years. And there'd be some kind of party at the end of the conference and everybody could network and meet up. And there'd normally be a band. And very often we get up and take the guitars off the, the musicians and start playing. <laughs> so it's a funny one. And, and then, you, you know, like-minded people, scientifically and musically. So it's, 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 a, it's as I say, yeah, there's many different doctors and scientists who are musical. And, and, and they're, not, they're not that far apart, you know, because music actually is very structured. It's quite, quite mathematical. The core changes are systematic. So it's not that mm. sort of a peculiar to read about musicians also being scientists, you see. And then for me personally, as, as, as a scientist, first and foremost, and then music is my big hobby. I had to dig into the science of music, didn't I? And what the science <laughs> tells us about music. So I think it's a good example, isn't it? Yeah, of the, of the interface between the arts and the sciences. Really. How does it make you feel? When you're up in front of people and playing, what what goes through your body when you're? Oh, when you're it's great! It's always fun. Let's start with that. Now, sometimes you might get a bum note, <laughs> or maybe <laughs> the audience aren't quite as responsive. But you're mainly doing it for me and my fellow musicians. We love being in a band together. There's a great sense of being part of a tribe or a team, you know that kind of thing. And in our band, uh, there's three doctors and two scientists. You see, so we're very well qualified, you know. But, but yeah, I mean, any musician will tell you if you have a, if you play music and people enjoy it. It's a wonderful two-way street, isn't it? You know, you're, you're, you're feeding off them and they're getting stuff from you. So it's always, it's always fun. With tribes, you're, you're mentioning there, your family, Margaret, Sam and Stevie, scientists as well. Yeah. So, so at the Christmas dinner table in a, in a house like that, what's the conversation like? Well, the first thing we ask is, what is the nutrient value of turkey? We begin with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and? Make sure, make sure you get a bit, of, make sure, a bit of roughage. Make sure you go for the sprouts, because otherwise you're gonna, there'll be a microbiota imbalance. That, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it's funny that. You want to think we'd put them off. Because, again, my like, like parents often bang on about things. And the kids go, I don't want that. <laughs> and that might be evolved as well, by the way, to break away from the parents. But for some reason, both of our sons decided to become scientists at the moment anyway. You know? So Stevie's doing a PhD in Cambridge, in chemistry. Sam's doing physics and physics and nanoscience. So it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, so, so we do occasionally have scientific conversations around the, especially me and my wife, because she's a biochemist. And we, we, we often talk about our research, you see, when we come home after a, either a good or a bad day in the lab, we, we give each other advice and talk about our projects together, you know? So, so it's very useful. In fact, people have asked in the past, how, how could you possibly marry a scientist? Because surely you want to get away from it when you're away from work, you know? But the trouble is that that would have meant a whole part of my life would have been excluded from my farm, you know? It's a bit like as if you, a German person marries an Italian and neither can speak to this language, you know? That, that <laughs> might not go very well. So, so I, I ultimately, I think I had to marry a scientist given that such, such a big part of my life, you know? You said it earlier in the conversation there about, you know, research and it, it is the thing, data, understanding what we're doing. 
what is it about the research process that people can maybe understand a little bit more about? Because, you know, if we're being, we're going to write a white paper, it can be daunting. It can be scary research, having to look at papers. Oh, I don't think I can do that. That's for them. How can we overcome that hurdle emotionally and actually understand that? Well, actually, we need to be able to understand to look into science and research a little bit and take something. It it can be very difficult. And of course, the trouble is we get more and more specialised, don't we? And then that really puts people off. What's the great phrase? You know, more and more, but less and less. That's that's the history of science in a way. Um, But the truth of it is what what attracted me to it from the very get go was you'd say something and it wasn't just an opinion. You data to back it up. So I'd show a graph and say, look. This is the way I think this particular thing is. And here's my data. And you can choose to believe me or not if you wish. You know, and I love this as well. The fact that the Royal Society, which is the world's most eminent, oldest scientific, its motto is take nobody's word. Isn't that tremendous? <laughs> yeah. In other words, show me the data. Because, because yeah. I, I, and it's not so much an arrogant thing or a thing to say up yours. It's satisfying. You know, mm-hmm. in other words, I can back up what I'm saying. Like, I really want to know x about the immune system and it's all very well having ideas and i can be happy with the ideas and the theory part but if i do an experiment in a lab that supports that idea that's tremendously satisfying intellectually you see so so, so that, that's why that's why it's mark science out of course because it's a, it's a very empirical sort of data-driven process and for me it's all about um comfort it might be one word i would use in a sense because i I'm, i've got comfort with my bottom line and my bottom line can be supported by an even better day with another lab to repeat our work. That's a great moment for us because there's always a risk of an artifact or something in my life, the machines being set wrong. If someone in Japan or America repeats our work, wow, we've discovered the truth. You know, what we found is actually true. And, that, and for me, it's, it, that's, the, that's the primary motivation. It's not so much to discover a cure for disease X, even though that is the ultimate goal. It's just satisfying. You know, it's kind of intellectually satisfying to see that. So if people are a bit anxious or fearful of it, Remember, if you get through the data and you find data yourself in your own lab, that's a tremendous thrill. You know, that, that's a wonderful feeling to have. One of your skills, I think, that you don't mind me saying is that you are able to take complex systems, complex ideas and distill them down. So we aren't banging our heads together trying to understand. We get it straight away. Was this always a piece that you had or how did you naturally harness that skill, even the example? of the lycosites surfing the bloodstream earlier yeah. on in the conversation. It was a gradual process, Karen. So I began with teaching. After, when, I, when I was appointed in Trinity York, maybe 30 years ago now, they gave me, because nobody wanted it, the first 20 lectures for the first years in biology. Now, there's a challenge for you, because they're all 18. They're all sitting there. There's 300 of them. You know? so, now, the good thing is, it's the first week of term, so they're quiet. <laughs> Um, and my job was to turn them on to biology. Now, now many have, I, I, at the very start of the lect- first lecture, I got, and many haven't done biology. A third of the hands go up. So you're talking to a new audience, you know. So I had to learn how to, how to convey mm. mitochondria or, you know, and you guys that would have done biology in, in your training, I'm sure, you know, lies is all. In other words, there are complex concepts in there. How do you convey it? And, and I was initially, I might have made a hand up. So you learn as you go along, kind of thing, you know. And then, and I loved it. I began to enjoy it more and more. And then next thing then, uh, I would often have to give a talk in public about my research. And again, you got to learn how to. And, and a big help to me, Karen, was the science gallery. Remember that in Trinity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if to sign, now, the sad thing is it's closed at the moment. But I got involved in that in 2009. They taught me how to pitch things for the public because the science gallery was all about outreach, you know. And then eventually I ended up on the radio just because they asked me. I didn't, I didn't um, volunteer. That was a challenge again, like a five or ten minute spiel on something. You had to be really snappy, you know. But I guess you learn on the job. In my case, I was able to learn as I went along. And it's years, it, what, what you see now 
there's years of experience. You know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. You got to learn it. You, you can get tips. I mean, I, I would have gone to, I would have learned a bit about uh, what not to do. You know, like as soon as you put a jargon word in, the other person stops listening. Or if you have a jargon that you don't explain, they definitely stop listening. You've lost. I mean, there's various things you can do to try to try to uh, keep the person engaged. I guess there's, there's, there's tricks of the trade as well, which I would have learned along the way. When did you recognize that science was for you? That it was the, it was the story of your life because you you identify yourself as a scientist there. Yeah, yeah. It began. I, 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 looking back at it, I suppose it was a teacher. I must give credit to a school teacher, a teacher called Fran Mooney. When I was in, I was from Bray. I went to Presbury and he was our biology teacher. I thought it was brilliant what he was teaching me. I need more of that. So I began with it. And many of us would agree teachers can be hugely important mm-hmm. in the direction we take. And I began to love biology. Now, why, I guess, in our house growing up, my mother, when I was 11, gave me a chemistry set, which I quite like playing with, you know. Mm-hmm. I loved watching David Attenborough, as I'm sure you two did as well. And Carl Sagan had a thing called Cosmos that blew me mind as a 15-year-old. So, so I must have been receptive to it in a way, you know. But, but it was that teacher that really got me into it. And then I wanted to, and then I, as ever with things, when I was in sixth year, what are you going to do in, next? Do what you love. That was the advice we were given. And I, that was my favorite subject, biology. So I was naturally then driven into science in university and I picked biology then as a subject. And then it was just a process. Then. Luckily enough, now I, I may have, many people like that. And then after a year or two, they're sick of it and do something else. It was unrelenting for me then. You know, every year that went by, I got deeper and deeper in. Now, there were times of doubt, of course. And I almost left science a couple of times and other options and considered them, you see. But gradually I got drawn. The, the final thing, as I said earlier, was when I made my first discovery, I went, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. You know, like I, I've seen something no one in the world has ever seen before. You know, and then it's true because other labs are repeated, you know, and that was during my PhD. So by then I was completely hooked. You know, I, I couldn't escape it as a profession, really, as a result. You know? And then the other thing to say, by the way, is, of course, to be a scientist is just to be curious. That's the most important trait you need, actually, around the world, around you, and whatever part of science you work on. Curiosity is the essence of it. But then if it's going to be useful to people, wow, that, that, that's a good add-on, you know? And I've always been about trying to make discoveries relevant to these diseases that might improve insights for diagnosis or treatment, you know? And the culmination of all that for me is in the last year or so, where, where our anti-inflammatory drug, that treats inflammation was bought by Roche, the Swiss drug company, and they're running four trials in humans with our drug. We're waiting to hear back on those four trials as we speak. So now, of course, they could fail. Many drugs fall over. As you know, it's a, it's a challenging business to be in. But now I'm, I'm, I'm getting there, you know, kind of thing. You know? Mm-hmm. Now, can you imagine if, 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 if one of those trials worked, then I will go, wow, you know, all, all that effort it may actually yield a new medicine. Now, I have contributed with other companies, helping them along the way and stuff. So. I've been part of the process of drug discovery, but these are my own drugs that I'm talking about, you know, so we'll see if that pans out. So thinking to your day-to-day, you're a very busy man, as you mentioned at the start, a lot of cognitive load across the day in the lab, looking at these, being on these calls, what do you do to unwind maybe briefly where you can't get away for a, a, an hour session on the guitar or a 30-minute session on the guitar? You're, 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 in, you're in the nerve center here, by the way, it's my office, you know, so this is me. I'm here every day doing all this sort of stuff. Oh, you got to get in and go for a walk occasionally. If I, if I feel a bit tired or I'm thinking I'm not really making much progress here, I'll go down onto Pierce Street. There's a nice coffee shop. Get me fixed back up again. You know, that kind of thing. You know, Or I might go and chat to a fellow scientist for a cup of coffee and have it. That can be very rejuvenating as well. But you're right, though. You need to take regular breaks because otherwise you just get bogged down a bit, you know. And then um, I love, and then turning off, it's very important to, to completely, I mean, I, I'm a great fan of doing nothing sometimes. Now, now, what doing nothing actually means is nothing with a purpose. 
we're so driven by purpose aren't we, in our lives. You know, I've got to tick off this list. I've got to you know, have that meeting with that person. I've got to write that thing for the book or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about stuff that maybe watch a movie or read a book or stuff that isn't actually purposeful. It's really important. And as you, I guess as you both would know, that allows the brain to settle a bit. And now it begins to, you know, it's like free association stuff. And that's when new ideas might bubble up. But maybe have a bath. I'm a great fan, but again, I love them. Um, a long bath in a, if, I'm, if I'm away somewhere I'll have a long bath in the hotel room it's great you know and I find that very relaxing as well. so that, it's essential isn't it that we, we, we can turn up it must be safe. 100% here do you one of my last ones and then over to you Kieran. curious here here's a scientist a man who's doing loads of things researching looking at all those Bunsen burners but you have a team there as well yeah and, and what's it like in terms of you know, doing your own thing that you're curious about and engage with. And I want to answer those questions, you know, the bit yeah. of the ego piece potentially, or just a curiosity piece, but then you've got your team yeah. where you're building the energy and you're seeing them and interacting morning and afternoon. And what's that like? And I suppose getting the balance between the yeah. two. The, the best analogy, I'm like a football manager now. I'm not playing on the pitch anymore. Okay. So behind me here, there's a football match going on the lab, not, not literally, but they're all doing <laughs> their thing. They're the ones scoring the goals, you know, and I'm, I, I'm the manager. I've recruited them. I set the tone, I set the area, I, I advise them on what to work on in a broad sense, and then I give them a project, and off they go with their project, you see. Mm. And then they come and see me, and, we, and, and I'll give them advice along the way. Now, sometimes it's all them. The really bright ones don't need me at all, by the way, and they, they can do it without me. Uh, some of them need more help here and there. Most people need encouragement of some kind, and a bit of nudging, and a bit of guidance. But I really come into my own, and what I say is writing up the paper to be published, because I've got lots of experience how to pitch it, you know. And then getting the referees to review and all that kind of thing. You know, I'm a great schmoozer. And one reason I got confident is you get the referees softened up to accept our <laughs> so that's one of my jobs. And then I've got my other big job is bringing in collaborators. Because I, I can call anybody in the world now and ask them to help us. And then you need collaborators in this business because they might have a different technique that we haven't got in my lab, some fancy piece of kit that we're missing. They might have ideas. I mean, the great thing is they're extremely collaborative. Like I, I tell my the people in my lab, I'm not the boss. It's a team. We're, we're, we're all together in this. as a one big collaboration. And we both bring very important things to the table. They bring skill in the lab and they do an experiment. And I bring a bit of support, a bit of guidance and ideas. And, 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 and basically, one of my main jobs is I say to them, stop doing that, do this, for example. You know? And that simply comes from experience, you see. So it's at its best when it's a collaboration. It should always be collaborative. And then the way the authorships on the papers go, is you might know, I'd, I'd be the senior author. They'd be the first author. It's their, their work. And I'm like the last author. There's a kind of the overarching presence i suppose over the whole thing but it's a really important thing to get right and, and some labs get it wrong the boss is too dictatorial i'm a great fan of autonomy actually and, and especially in science they've got to have the, they've got to own their own work and own their own projects mm -hmm. autonomy is a very important now they need to be trained it, it does take three four years to get a phd remember my job is to train them. i'm a trainer I'm a, again the, the, the football analogy isn't bad i'm on the training ground with them as well helping them you know so and then eventually some of them don't need much training Mm. some do so it's a bit of a mix it depends on the people themselves as well. great analogy yeah thanks very much for all the information so far we've one last question for the gaffer for the gaffer <laughs> thank you for the boss <laughs> for Pep Guardiola the here. manager <laughs> oh that's um, a good comparison thanks very yeah, much I was I, we're, we're United fans <laughs> David and I we want to say Eric but not yet Eric just not yet Soon. not quite not yeah. quite yeah um, so the last question we've asked anyone and everyone who's come on the show it's what does high performance mean to you high performance oh that's a tricky one now I suppose for me what it means is be achieving flow there's an answer in other words 
the, the secret, in my opinion, overall is if you're a musician or a scientist or whatever, if you get to this flow state, which means you're fully engaged, you know, you're in the zone and you're, you're delivering in a way, either with ideas or experiments, or playing a piece of music, you know, so so high performance, you're performing at the highest level when you achieve that, as you know, this psychological term called flow state. And of course, remember, that's very beneficial for our health as well. If we can get into this flow state, it's, it's one of the big dreams that we have, isn't it, always to, to achieve flow. So for me, high performance is always about achieving that, that uh, almost zen-like calm uh, when you're in the zone. That's, that's what I, that's what I, I would uh, react to the term high performance. Like you were today. Well, now there you have it. Professor <laughs> <laughs> Luke O'Neill, thanks for helping us understand as well as everyone else as to what makes us human and so much else, but also to echo what Kieran said earlier about making science fun, engaging and easier to understand. And we do commend you for that because it, it's such a skill and thanks we really admire you for it. So thanks again for your time. Really grateful that you've given us that your morning and, and we learned a lot. And just no our thanks very much, Ivan. Thanks, Kieran. It, it was a great old chat. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan. <laughs>